occasionally you will be going along, maybe you're driving, and you'll see a house that's built in the oddest spot. Or you've seen in the cities one of those buildings that's like a triangle and it's got two streets, you know, and you're like, why did they build a building there? Or occasionally you'll come to, you know, a whole city. I'm thinking of New Orleans where the whole city is a swamp. And it, if it's not for all the canals and the levees and the water pumps, most of the city would be underwater. And because of the ingenuity of engineering, we're able to keep that city from being a swamp, from going back to being a swamp. Except when things go wrong, right? When levees break, when canals overflow and pumps are flooded and they don't pump the water out of the city, like in Hurricane Katrina. And so we see that sometimes you scratch your head and you think, I don't know if it was wise to build a city on a swamp. Now, I'm not from New Orleans. I'm not invested there. I don't have all the memories of my life there. So uh, I'm looking at it from an outsider's perspective. But sometimes it's not just cities, but it's our lives that are built that way. They're not built to last. They're not constructed to be durable. We're continuing, and in fact, we're ending our series in the parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And, and I thought it would be a fitting ending to end as Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with the parable of the two builders, the wise builder and the foolish builder. How do we construct a life that will last through difficulty? Let's keep that question in mind as we turn together to Matthew chapter 7 and read verses 24 through 27. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we give you thanks for this, your word. And we ask, Father, that as we go to construct our lives, that you would show us the wise way to build that you would open up these words of Christ so that we may behold wonders therein. For we pray this in his matchless name. And amen. Amen. Jesus begins this parable. Everyone then who hears these words of mine. It's interesting because most of us fumble over speech. I don't know about you, but I've had to tell people many times, I'm sorry for the things I've said. Or I've had to clarify by saying, this is actually what I meant. Right? Because none of our speech is perfect. Jesus never had to do that. There was never a moment where he spoke a word where he had to say, 
I'm sorry, I was confused. This is what I meant to say. All of his words were perfect and true and right and fitting for that moment. So when Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine, we need to pay attention. Our, the writers of our Bibles are not too far off when they try to put the words of Jesus in red. Now, I think that can be unhelpful in some ways because it, it forces a dichotomy where you think, well, the red letter words are the ones I need to pay attention to and everything else is, you know, not the word of God. And that's not the truth. But what they're trying to emphasize is that when Jesus is speaking, pay attention. The analogy here, it's an analogy. This is not an allegory. We don't need to look for allegorical interpretations for what the wise or the fool is or the materials they use or where they build. It is an analogy and a comparison between those who hear and do and those who hear but don't listen. They hear, but they're not putting into practice what Jesus had said. And just as we've seen over and over again in these parables, there are two responses. Here we don't have to do a lot of work to figure out which one is right. They're the wise and the foolish. This morning I want to spend a little bit more time looking at the wise man and the way he builds. And then in the end we'll come back and look at some ways in our culture, in our own lives, where we are susceptible to building like fools. But Jesus begins with the wise, and so will we. The wise, in comparison to the fool, builds upon the rock. Anyone who has built anything knows that the foundations are absolutely essential. If you don't have the foundation secured, the rest of the building will never stand. Not just when things get hard, not just when storms come, but you're likely to not have a building that will last under normal conditions. My own basement, I go into, and it's been reinforced on the north side because it was buckling in. And they had to reinforce that whole side because they foolishly did not take care to build with the proper materials or take the time to make sure the foundation was secure. In Palestine, the climate is, which you wouldn't think this, but it gets as much rainfall as London. And I don't know about you, but I think of London as being gray and rainy all the time. And it is. It rains 300 days out of the year on average. But on average, it gets 22 inches of rain. The same is in Palestine. But Palestine gets 22 inches of rain in 50 days. It comes quick and fast, like last week. Like in East Stroudsburg, with all the flooding, with all that water that comes so quickly, it has nowhere to go, and it causes great damage. It's a lot of rain, very fast. Now, the wise person builds in such a way, thinking about that. He's preparing for that. They're thinking, okay, we know it rains a lot. What's this plot of land going to do when it rains? And how should I construct a house that will last, that will endure that kind of rain and wind and beating? 
It's not as convenient. It's going to be more challenging. Oftentimes they would hand carve the foundation out of the rock on the ground. That would be their foundation. They had to carve it. And then they would build upon that with brick and mud. But that was fixed and immovable. And it would last. But oftentimes it was not near water, which we'll talk about with the foolish. They don't have central running water. They have to go and get water. And there would be a perennial temptation to put your house closer to water. But if you put your house closer to water, you put your house at risk when the waters rise. It's not convenient. It's harder work initially, but in difficulty, it will endure. It will be able to withstand. It will last. See, the point of comparison rests between those who hear and do and those who hear but don't do. The question we have to ask is, as Jesus repeats over and over again, these words of mine. Here's these words of mine. What words of mine is Jesus speaking about? And as I said earlier, he is concluding the Sermon on the Mount. So we have to ask ourselves, what is Jesus speaking about in the Sermon on the Mount? How is that relevant for us building a life that will last? So I want to do two things. I want to give a broad outline of the Sermon on the Mount. And then I just want to look at one instance of his teaching and show how he makes application and how using the teaching of Jesus as the building materials for our lives, we too can construct a life that will last. See, some come to the Sermon on the Mount and they think, like many of you have, impossible. Impossible. How could anyone ever live up to that kind of standard? Oh, we like the Beatitudes, blessed, 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 blessed. We love that. But then it immediately gets into how, how then should you live? And it's hard. In fact, Jesus ends right before our parable, Matthew seven twenty one. He says these very hard words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And you read those words and you think it seems to suggest Jesus is teaching a works righteousness. And haven't we encountered this over and over again? And we we come across these problems because we struggle so desperately with the relationship between the law and the gospel. How are those two to relate? And we read Paul and he says, We're no longer under the law. And so we we read Jesus' statements in the Sermon on the Mount and we think, I don't know what to do with this. Since Luther, we have had this reading of the law that says the law's purpose really is to show you that you can't obey. And so you read and you hear and you see that adultery is not just Not committing adultery, but it's not looking at someone with lustful intent. And murder is not just not killing somebody, but not being angry. And we think, how could I ever obey that? And Luther said, you can't. And it's there to drive you to Christ. It's as a tutor, so that you see he is perfect and could perfectly keep the law, but you cannot. And part of that is true. It is true. The law is meant to drive us to Christ. But is that it? 
Is that all that its function is? Sadly, this Lutheran view, this Lutheran interpretation has found its way into Reformed churches. It's wreaking havoc on our doctrine of sanctification. Because the Lutheran says that the doctrine of sanctification is just trust in your justification. Well, if that's the case, then why do I need to change my life now? And so we have churches that are struggling under the weight of homosexual sin with revoice who are clinging to this doctrine. But they have misapplied the law of God. They have not seen the beauty and glory and the gracious nature of the law. So the key to understanding the Sermon on the Mount is the same key to understand Paul, to understand Moses. It's not different. It's not a different story. Jesus is not speaking a different story that he spoke in Exodus, that he is now in the Sermon on the Mount, or that Paul speaks. We're not to pit these against each other. So I want to look very briefly at the prologue to the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, verses 1 through 2. And I want you to listen to the language because it's very important. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. He begins like this before he gives them commands. He says, I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh, your God. He is in covenant relationship with them. He has explained to them what he has done to accomplish that relationship. He brought them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt and set them free. And then he said, you are to have no other gods before me and the rest of the Ten Commandments. You see, The law doesn't establish the relationship. If the law established the relationship, we would expect God to say something like this. I am the Lord God. If you want to be my people, if you want my protection and blessing, then you must obey me completely. You must do exactly as I command you today or else you will die. But if, I, but if you do what I say, then I will be your God and let you have a relationship with me. Is that what he says? No, that's not what he says. He says, you are mine. I have bought you. I have saved you and reconciled you to myself. Now, because that is true, walk in obedience. The law does not establish the relationship The relationship is already there. And and God is merely describing His character, who He is. What kind of God do we have to do with? How are we to walk in relationship with Him? Well, we're not to worship other gods. We're not to bow down to them. We're not to take His name in vain. We're to keep the Sabbath because it's holy. We're to honor those who are in authority over us. And on and on and on, He establishes how it is those who are called by His name, who are brought into relationship with them, how they should live. In it, we see the character of God and we see that He's a God of justice, but a God of mercy and compassion. Seeing the law in this way helps us because 
people who view the law as a way to earn the relationship, as a way to earn God's favor, are the pagans. This is Baal worship. This is Islam. This is just paganism. But the Christian religion is a religion of grace. It's a religion of faith. It's not a religion of us having to work to earn that relationship. God makes the relationship. He calls you. You don't call yourself. How does this relate to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount? And here the question of audience is very important. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, this is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 1, he says this, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and then he gives his sermon. What's going on here? Okay, he's got a massive crowd. He's got 12 disciples that he's trying to inculcate the faith in. And he's thinking, I can't do this with this kind of crowd. Time for a leadership retreat. So they take a mountain leadership retreat, and he sets out to them, what life in the kingdom of God looks like. Now, is Jesus saying, if you obey this Sermon on the Mount, you can become my disciples? Is that what Jesus is saying? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, you are already my disciples. I have called you. You didn't do anything to that. Most of you were minding your own business. But now you have been called and set apart and made my disciples. What does it look like to live as my disciples? The Sermon on the Mount. It's not works righteousness. It's not a way to earn our relationship with Jesus. It's a way to manifest it to the world. And we know this because... Jesus says right off in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What he is setting out is what life looks like in the kingdom of God. It's similar to the parables. That's what we've been seeing over and over again. This is what life is like in God's kingdom. And this is how you, called by Christ, are to live within that kingdom. This ensures that we don't turn the commands into something to earn our salvation. But it also means that we don't relegate them to being useless or mere guides towards Christ. But they are a rule of life. They show us what life is to look like. And they call us to follow Christ. Now I want to look at a test case. How does Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount... Uh, open up for his disciples what life is like in his kingdom. You see over and over again that the Sermon on the Mount follows a predictable formula. You have heard it said, followed by a quotation of the law, followed by, but I say unto you, and his interpretation along with application. This is why we call it a sermon. Right? Jesus is expositing the law of God. He is opening up. And remember, go back to what the words of Jesus are. 
Now, is this just one interpretation that we put alongside, like Piper, MacArthur, R.C. Sprawl, we just kind of let Jesus line it up? No, because he speaks authoritatively. He speaks the word from God. And so we know this is God's authorized interpretation of what he always intended. The the rabbis interpreted the law, but Jesus, he speaks authoritatively. This is why they marvel at him. How could you say such things? Must be God. Well, he was. And like the case law system of the Mosaic, he, he always includes a near application. An application for his disciples to glean from. Right? This is what the Mosaic Law is. It's an application of the Ten Commandments to a theocracy in an agrarian society in that period of time. Now, our application, and this is one of the reasons why I'm not a capital T theonomist. I am a theonomist, but I'm a lower T. Because I believe that the law of God, all men must submit to. Not just Christians. Right? Because if the law is the character of God, then it governs how life should be lived. Because that's who God is. But I don't believe that we should take the Mosaic Law and say it should be applied one for one. Because their situation is much different than ours. We are not an agrarian society. We do not have the kinds of difficulties and challenges of applying the Sixth Commandment, for instance, in preserving life. It's going to look different in our time. Much different. But we do have to do the hard work of taking the law of God and applying it to our lives. And Jesus does that. He gives application to his contemporary situation. What's going on in Jerusalem at the time. And and usually he's countering the interpretations of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You see, were were the Pharisees obedient Didn't they hear the word of God and do it? I mean, they're commended for that. Unless your, Jesus says in this very sermon, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. They're not not obedient. They are. But they're not obedient in all the right ways, are they? Obedient how? And in what way? This is what we talked about a few weeks ago. The floor and the ceiling of ethics. What's the floor? The floor is the Ten Commandments. What's the ceiling? The ceiling is the ideal. That's how we should be living. And I use the example of adultery. Now, if I mistreat my wife, I beat her, I'm terrible to her, I mistreat her, I'm cruel and harsh towards her, but I never commit adultery. Never. Do I love her? Am I, being, am I really being faithful to what God has called me to do? The floor is not committing adultery. I've kept that. And the Pharisees did as well, right? They said, these are all the laws, and they made their own laws to make sure they never went over them. But did they keep the law from the heart? Did they love God, first of all? And did they actually love their neighbor? Well, the answer to that is no, they didn't. They didn't love God or their neighbor. They kept the law, but only the floor. They never loved God from the heart. It's not just killing, but preserving life. 
There's much more included in thou shalt not kill than just not killing someone. And that's what Jesus is showing over and over and over again. You have heard it said, but I say to you, you have heard it said, but I call you to something much deeper. I call you to a love that issues from the heart, from the soul that is converted and loves God and issues forth in love towards a neighbor. But if that's not the case, then you are the foolish builder. For the, the wise builder takes these words of Jesus and puts them into practice. And says, I'm not just going to not commit adultery, but I'm going to love my wife as Christ loved the church. I'm not just going to not murder my neighbor, but I'm going to work for his preservation. And that's hard. That's not easy. The easy way is to build by water. Not to worry about a foundation. Just set it up. The easy way is just to do the floor. But the only person that's safe from life's storms is the person who builds upon the work of Jesus Christ. Only a life constructed on the bedrock of Christ and these words of His can last. Which begs the question, what kind of builder are you? What are you constructing your life with? Will it last? There's a humorous section in a movie called Night and Day with Tom Cruise. It's sort of an action romantic comedy. And he's this spy and he gets entangled in this plot. And he unwittingly involves a young lady in that as well. And so he finds himself responsible to protect her. But he can't really tell her what's going on. So everywhere they're going, they're getting shot at and she's in danger and she's getting frustrated because she thinks it's all him. And he comes to this point where he's just going to let her go. He's just saying, fine, it, it doesn't matter. I, I tried to protect you. But he, he, he becomes very frank with her. And he says, just so you understand, right now, out there on your own, your life expectancy is like here. With me, it's up here. Without me, down here. With me, up here. Without me, with me. Without Jesus... Your life expectancy is nothing. You will not survive the storms of this life, let alone the judgment that is to come if you have not built with Christ, with Him, without Him, with Him. What are you building your life with? As I said, I just want to spend just a moment talking about those who build on the sand because I want to give some warning. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. These are people who are called by him, but one of them forsakes him. One of them sells him out. One of them didn't listen. He heard. He was there. He was with Jesus. He communed with him, but he didn't listen and he betrayed the Lord. It seems that there is Always an easier way. It seems that the path that Jesus calls us to is always a hard one. And we, our flesh wants the easy way. We want to say, I, don't, I want a theology of glory. I don't want a theology of the cross. I don't want to have to die. 
I don't want to have to build a 